welcome to all those who are present with us in worship today. May our sovereign Lord be honored and glorified in our worship. And we say welcome to those who are worshiping with us online also. Consistory has one announcement, and that this coming Tuesday, the Lord willing, at 7.30, Consistory hopes to meet. Today we welcome Reverend Campen from Orangeville. He is no stranger amongst us. Welcome, brother, and we thank you for your willingness and desire to lead us here today. Our call to worship, our sovereign God, comes from Psalm 99, the verses 1 through 3. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Please rise as we prepare to worship the Lord our God. Brothers and sisters, where does our help come from? Receive the Lord's greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now sing together Psalm 135, the stanzas 1, 2, and 7. Oh. 
After we together submit ourselves to the ten words of God's covenant, let us sing together from the hymn, Your Law, O God, is Our Delight, the stanzas 3, 5, 6, and 7. And God speaks all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you and the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. Our Lord Jesus teaches us this in a summary as we find it in Matthew chapter 22, for example. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13, that the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law.
Let us now together call upon the Lord in prayer. Heavenly God, gracious Father, we give our thanks that you have gathered us together again for worship. As you gather your flock here in this congregation, this place, the people that you have chosen for yourself to be holy to you. Father, what a privilege it is that we may set aside our regular activities that keep us busy day by day, and that you have given us a day of worship, a day to rest from our regular task, a day to be refreshed in our relationship with you. Father, what an honor it is to indeed be your children, to know you as the Father who loves us, as you have shown also by giving us your only begotten Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And Father, as we also give thanks for that, we continue to remember the, how we need him. Indeed, we need him every day, every moment, because without him, we would be children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We would remain in that state, and we would be subject to your condemnation. But only because of him and of your grace in him, as you have drawn us to yourself, are we a redeemed people. Now, Father, we know that we continue to need his sacrifice day by day, even as we live within the life of grace. For as we again also heard the ten words of the covenant, we were reminded of how we have only made a small beginning in that new obedience to which you call us. There continue to be so many shortcomings, so many ways that we have failed to love you wholeheartedly, to honor you in all that we do, to uphold your holy name always, and so often we have failed also to show genuine love towards our neighbor. And Father, even where we may be numb to our own sins and shortcomings, we know that you are not, for you are holy. And you see right through us. You see in our hearts with your Holy Spirit. You know all that lives there. You know our thoughts even before we think them. Father, so we confess that also in this past week, yes, this very day, there have been many sins and many shortcomings. And we continue to also need our Savior. And it is through him and him alone that we approach you also this day. And Father, we know that when we do so, when we hold on to your promise that those who come to you through your Son, you will see our sins no more. In that confidence, we also ask, be gracious to us, wash away all our iniquities, cleanse us each day again, cover us with the perfect sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ, by which he made atonement for our sins. We know that only in him is there the full satisfaction for our sins, as he has paid fully. Only in, by clinging to him will we be clothed with his righteousness and holiness. And so we do that this afternoon as well. We look to our, you, we look to you through our Savior Jesus Christ and hold on to your promise that when we do so, you see our sins no more. And Father, also in the confidence of faith, we now ask that you will bless us when we open Scripture together. Bless us when we read that word together and also then when we hear that proclaimed to us afterwards. Be pleased to work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we keep in mind that this is not just a human activity, that we are not here to hear a lecture or a speech, but we are here to listen to the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, how we are redeemed through him, also how we should live as those who have been redeemed by him. And so work on us mightily by your Spirit, that we may listen attentively, that we may be able to absorb what we hear, 
and work with it. And may also be able to go home rejoicing that we have heard your word again, that we will have been built up into faith, and we will live lives that increasingly bring praise and glory to your holy name. And so we ask for the necessary gifts, whether that be in the bringing of your word or in listening to it. Be pleased to accept our worship as we offer it to you through your Son, our Savior. In his name alone we pray. Amen. Let us now together open God's holy word and we turn to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And after the reading of God's word, let us sing from Psalm 78, the stanzas 1, 2, 3, and 4. Now, we read the word of God there as follows. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, and your midst is a jealous God lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, 
by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Thus far the scripture reading.
The text for the sermon is taken from our scripture reading, Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll just read the text portion again, the verses 4 through 9. And there we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. After the sermon, let us sing together from Psalm 119, the stanzas 40 and 42. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever you open Scripture to the book of Deuteronomy, it's always helpful to keep in mind that the book of Deuteronomy could be considered a bundle of Moses' farewell sermons. You know that because of the sin at Cadiz Barnea, later on also where the Moses had overstepped his authority and he had hit the rock rather than speak to the rock. The Lord said, you did not honor me as holy. He would not be allowed to enter the promised land. So Moses knew that was coming. He knew that he would die soon. But then as one of his last acts, you could say, he took it upon himself to review all the things that had happened in the previous 40 years or so. So the book of Deuteronomy becomes a collection of three about three major farewell sermons. The first sermon basically covers the chapters 1 through 4, which is basically an historical review of things that happened, and also, as, a, as a, the way he works with it, he makes all kind of applications based on the past history. But the bottom line of what also he tells the people there is that really they are to trust in the Lord and serve Him alone. That's the way forward. Trust in the Lord, serve Him alone. Now, I said there's about three major sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 1 through 4 forms the first one, which seems like a pretty long sermon already. But the next one starts at chapter 5 and really goes to about the end of chapter 26. Now, whether Moses delivered that in one go and the people had to listen to all that, we don't know for sure, but it does come across as a continual narrative. It begins with Moses then repeating the ten words of the covenant. You might have noticed that this time I actually read the Deuteronomy version of the commandments, also in our service this afternoon. And what he does then in the following chapters, he elaborates on these commandments. And again, as you read also these elaborations, you hear repeated calls to keep the commandments, trust in the Lord, walk in His way, and that is the way to a long life. And you also hear that in the verses leading up to our text. Now, 
Of course, those kind of calls to keep the commandments as the way to also enjoy a long life in the promised land, that inevitably has the sound of legalism in it, as if by keeping the commandments we are going to obtain our salvation. And we know that's not the case. We are saved out of grace. And the commandments, they are given to a people who have already been freed from their bondage. You think of how God, first of all, set Israel free from Egypt, then he gave the statutes at Mount Sinai. And of course, we know that also what happened to the people of Israel in the Old Testament time, the whole Exodus experience, really foreshadows our Exodus from bondage to Satan and sin through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's always to be kept in mind, as long as you see the general drift of the whole Exodus experience, even think of the very structure of the Ten Commandments, first of all, a reminder of what God has done. All calls to obedience are always a call as to how to respond to salvation. It's never the case of, do this, and then you may enter into my covenant. No, God says, you are in my covenant, and now because you are in my covenant, I want you to live in this way also comes through in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also at one point, he taught that those who love God, those who rejoice in belonging to him, they will seek to do his will, not to be saved, but as a response to the gift of salvation. So it is not a slavish obedience. No, it is a childlike obedience. And this also comes out in our text for this afternoon. It teaches us that we are called to carefully keep God's words by appropriation, communication, and commemoration. That's why I summed up the sermon in this way. We are called to carefully keep God's words by appropriation, communication, and commemoration. And then we begin with appropriation. Sounds like a bit of a big word. But to appropriate means that you take something and you make it your very own. You make it your own possession. You take ownership. And that this is the case comes out in the verses 4 through 6. For if you look at also the way our passage is put together, if you look at verse 4, at first actually you know you might think it comes across as a bit of an interruption in the flow of the text. For Moses had been calling his readers to obey. And even in the previous verses we read, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. And then again in verse 4 we have those words, Hear, O Israel. But then very suddenly we have a rather startling reminder of the uniqueness of our God. We should, keep well, should know very well that these words of verse 4, they actually still play a very large role among the Jewish people, even to this very day, the Orthodox Jewish people. Because it brings out how, how really God is so different from all the gods of the nations. If you know a bit about this passage, perhaps you might have heard that this, this is called the Shema. Well, the Shema that is actually the Hebrew word for hear. In our translation, we, we read then, so hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord 
is one. Now, if you go to the footnote of your Bible translations, I think all Bible translations will have that, you will notice that this is only about one of about four possible translations. And the reason for this whole variety is that this is a very compact little Hebrew statement. And you think, now, what is the difference sometimes in these little statements over here? But what can be concluded from it is that really it expresses the uniqueness of God, confessing that He alone is God. There are no other gods. All the other gods are simply imitations. They are figments of man's imagination. Here is the exclusive claim. Israel, your God is the only God. All the gods of the nations around about you, they're idols. They're empty. They're just wind, really. They mean nothing. Now, of course, it's also part of our central confession, part of our faith, that we know this God, the God that also was confessed by Israel as the Lord, Yahweh, we, of course, are further in salvation history, and we know that this is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know that He is not just one of the gods that takes up His place with the Muslim God or the Hindu gods or who knows what kind of gods. No, He is the only God. He's the only one that actually deserves to be called God, and all the other ones are simply imitations. They are all the inventions of the human mind. The Christian faith makes an exclusive claim. This is the Lord God, and He is God alone. There is no other. Now, these words, however, should not be taken in isolation. For they are critical in bringing out that we are dealing with a context of grace, not legalism. And this comes out in the command that immediately follows this confession. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And of course, these words are, are very familiar to us because our Lord Jesus referred to exactly these words when he was asked, well, which is the most important of the commandments? Well, he pointed to the very core of all the commandments. It comes down to love the Lord your God. He also added, of course, you should love your neighbor as yourself, the two main parts of the law. But this is what it's all about. Love God, love your neighbor. But we should recognize that this call to love, yes, it is a call to do something, but it is definitely something very different from all the other kind of things that we are called to do. Because, really, when you think about it, love touches our insights. All the other things, well, you can say there are things we do with our hands, they are external, even when it comes with our minds, to how we have to think. Well, love is a matter of the heart. It comes out also when it says, love him with all your heart and soul as well as with your might. You have to devote yourself to this God with your whole being. Now, this very command calls for appropriation, absorbing what is said and making it your very own. It implies also that there is a very close, loving, living relationship with the giver of this command. So it's not just kind of an abstract relationship, but it is very personal. There is an intimacy about it. Now, to understand this, I compare it to the way that many religions functioned. Because if you think about it, many of the religions, well, their adherents, they, they did not really think of a love relationship with their God. No, they were afraid of their gods. 
And they kept the laws, they kept all kinds of rituals to appease their gods, to keep them from throwing temper tantrums. Just do the right ceremonies and hopefully they won't get mad at you. But that's not a love relationship. That's a fear relationship. You know, we can even compare it to the way we have our laws as a nation. You know, I fear that, or I suspect that few would say that we truly love our government with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though you know the fifth commandment does call us to love our authority, those in authority over us. But there is still more distance. It's more distance. We don't, we don't love the laws of the land. And also, when it comes to many of these laws, we don't really do them because we love them from the heart, but there is an aspect of fear. We don't want to get into trouble with the authorities. Now, the Lord does not want that kind of attitude towards him and towards his laws. It's not distance. It's not supposed to be fear. No, you are to do it out of love, out of a commitment, something that you are personally involved in, something that you enjoy doing. You can well understand that to appropriate the commandments of God, to make them your very own, that they live within your heart, we must first of all appropriate the God who gives them. And you do that by loving Him. And love for His commandments, therefore, can only come after we have grasped His love for us. And when we love Him as the God of our salvation, then we will also see how His laws show the way to joyful, blessed life in relationship with Him. If we don't see that, if we don't love our God, then those laws will always be a burden. And therefore, brothers and sisters, let us examine ourselves whether we appropriate the Lord, whether we make Him our own and believe He is our own, whether we appropriate, you could say, His covenant promises, promises about forgiveness, about the hope of everlasting life, as well as His commands. In that respect, we have to ask ourselves, is our faith something outside of us or something inside of us? Do we, do we go through the motions of serving the Lord, or do we live with deep emotions? You know, if we simply go through the motions, well, then all the laws of God will seem like a heavy yoke. But if we live with deep emotions for the giver of the law, our Savior, our God, who has saved us through Jesus Christ ultimately, then the laws of God, they become a light yoke to guide us in the way of life. We will see them as blessed fences to keep us from wandering into destruction. Or to put it in terms of singing, if, if we simply go through the motions of serving God, then, then every time a minister assigns a psalm like Psalm 19, with all these beautiful standards about the law, or Psalm 119, but so all about the law of God, well, they, they will seem like awful songs. Oh, we've got to sing about the law again? But if we live with emotions, where we love the Lord our God, then His law will be our delight, and those songs will be our delight, because we love to sing about the good law the Lord God has given us. Now, as there then is a call to appropriation, 
there is also a call to communication. That's our second point. Now, the word communication was chosen to capture the call to diligently teach the children. And if we recall how the Lord our God made his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, it's not surprising that we hear mention of children. Because we know that's how God works. In his gracious way, he says, I make my covenant with the believers and their children. And I I work through the generations. Yes, he gathers people in from elsewhere too, but, but a fundamental way that has shown throughout the ages is he works throughout the generations. That's how it was in Old Testament times. That has not changed in New Testament times. The only thing different is that in the Old Testament time, the Lord focused his attention on the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants, people of Israel. But then, after the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, it went to the Gentiles, but the pattern continued of working through the generations. It's evident also in the way that you read the various letters of the Apostle Paul, and then he gives instructions about family life. The instructions about family life implies God is still working through the generations, parents and children living together, being taught how to also interact together in a God-pleasing way. But what needs our attention here then is the command to teach the children as well as to how to go about it. Now, as for the command to teach, this impresses upon us the parents' solemn responsibility to speak about the Lord. Now you can understand also why we sang a few stanzas from Psalm 78, because that psalm in the bigger picture, you know, it is a history lesson of God's dealing with his often stubborn people of Israel, but the first number of verses also reflected in our rhyme version emphasizes the task of the parents to teach the next generation. But the beauty of Psalm 78 is that it brings out that instruction is not only about the commandments of the Lord, but also about God's mighty works and His promises. Also something that came out in the last part of our reading in Deuteronomy 6, where the sons would ask their father, now why are we doing these kind of things? And then the first thing would not be, well, God gave us the law and we should do this and that. No, we are, they were to tell their children about all the things that God had done for his people to liberate them from their slavery and oppression in Egypt. So, to kind of sum that up, you know, the task of the parents is not just to lay down the law for the children. No. If anything, the first thing that parents have to do is lay out before the children the glorious deeds of God, all the things that he has done. You know, the Old Testament parents, they would talk about the exodus and how God set them free. As New Testament parents, we tell them that too, and then we say, but you know, that points to what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. We have been set free from a far greater threat, far greater bondage, namely the bondage to Satan and sin through the work of Jesus Christ. You see, in that way, if you think of the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, he echoes this when he says, parents, and he focuses especially on fathers, Bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, in the promises of the Lord, and also how we should live as his children. Now, the importance of this teaching comes out in the call to do this diligently. You know, diligently means you put a lot of effort into it. 
Actually, the word that is used here is related to a term used to wet or sharpen a sword. Now, it's not the kind of things that people do nowadays anymore, but you can imagine when someone made a sword and then they had to sharpen it, that would require a lot of effort, a lot of skill. Well, if we can follow that image through a little bit, you could say that, that children need to be prepared for spiritual battle. And parents have to be busy sharpening the minds and the hearts of their children to know what is the way of the Lord, what is the way of the enemy. There is knowledge to be learned. There are all kinds of skills. They, they need to be honed to perfection so that the children know the way of the Lord and they know how to resist the attacks of the evil one. Now, as for how to do this, well, it is rather obvious. It's done by communication, by talking to the children. And Moses' words here, they bring out that this is not just an occasional conversation. But did you say that? Not that you say, well, today is the 15th of the month, you know, it's been a month, we should have a little talk to my children. No, it's more like an ongoing conversation comes out in the way it mentions, you know, when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Actually, this is an activity that fills every day. It suggests there is constant interaction between parents and children. Here, especially this passage, it kind of focuses especially on the task of the fathers, very fitting also on, on today's, what we, do, what we call Father's Day. Now, while Moses' words may reflect the way that parents and children were constantly together while journeying through the desert on the way to the promised land. And, and of course, it would also anticipate life in an agricultural society where, where you could say education was basically a home matter. You know, parents today, and I think in that respect, especially mothers with young children, they know about this, always being busy with their children from the moment that they get up, when they walk by the wayside, when they sit down, and even when it's time to go back to sleep. For mothers know. Maybe fathers don't always realize this because they might be gone before the family gets up, but, but the mothers know. The moment a child wakes up, there is communication going on. There are questions. There are all kinds of instructions that have to be given. And, and that goes on throughout the day. Always, why, mom? Why, mom? Why not this? Why not that? And it doesn't even stop when you tuck the child into bed. The mother leaves the room and another question comes. The child is not quite done asking questions. Drive to the store. Children ask questions. Why this? Why that? Sometimes big theological discussions take place while the mother is giving the child a bath or going for a walk. Now, to be sure, not every question is faith-related, but in the whole manner of interacting, Christian parents teach the children about living as children of God in this world. It's just, it's just part of life. It kind of goes on day by day, kind of an organic kind of thing. Now, it may be tempting to take this call to communicate in all activities throughout the day as you can say, well, here we have a proof text for those who, who homeschool, but chose that's the right way to do. 
Well, brothers and sisters, that would be a case of biblicism. For this particular instruction reflects the way of life back then. For even the book of Proverbs suggests that, that in ancient Israel, there was actually some type of schooling where the children were taught by, by someone else. And we should realize that as societies became more urban, more complex, you could say that school systems in that respect are only kind of a natural development in history. And they have been so for millennia in many different cultures. But the lasting point that does come out from this instruction is that parents must do their utmost that all the education that the children receive is in accordance with God's Word. Now, as I said, it was biblicism to make it a proof text for homeschooling. It would also be a stretch to say, well, here then we have a proof text for Christian day schools. But it's understandable that, that, the under, that, that, that when we see that there is a need to educate our children from the moment they get up to the moment they go to sleep in the way of the Lord, that has been a strong impetus throughout the ages for also parents to set up Christian education. And for this reason, we speak of parental schools, as parents pool their resources to educate the children together in the ways of the Lord. And so we can see that the exact how of educating, whether it is done, you could say, in a home situation in certain times and places, or whether it is done as a school, as a group, that will depend on circumstances. But the fact that the parents have a responsibility to see to it that the children grow up in the way of the Lord day by day, that is beyond question. It only stands to reason that if parents have appropriated the promises and the commands of the Lord, if they live in fellowship with the Lord God Himself, they will make every effort. They will expend energy. They will expend money, whatever is necessary, to communicate this to the next generation. That's really a holy calling. Now, having expanded on appropriation and communication, we come to our last point, commemoration. Now, the word commemoration was chosen to capture what is in verse 8. For Moses instructed his hearers to bind the commandments as a sign on the hand and as, as frontlets between the eyes, and also to write them on the doorposts and their gates. Now, we don't know if people followed up on this right away when Moses gave this instruction, but, but it is known that over time the Jewish people began to take this very literally. And to this day, many will, pious Jews, they will wear what is called a, a phylactery, that is a little box which they can tie with a ribbon to their forehead that will contain uh, passages of Scripture. And they would also, perhaps either tie it to their forehead or they could tie something to their arm, and they would use this especially at a time of prayer. It's interesting when you kind of look on the internet about this too, then it will show that, especially when they tie it to their forehead, it looks a bit like they have a little horn. But that's because they had that little piece of scripture in a little box tied to themselves. It's also possible that they would take a little, a little cylinder, they would par put part of Scripture in there, maybe the Ten Commandments written very finely, and they would put it on the doorpost of, of a certain room or of their house, 
and they would then touch it every time they entered that room, and then they would kiss their fingers afterwards. Now, it's not hard to figure out the reason for this command. Because by doing this, you know, something very practical, you could say, well, there were very visible reminders of God's Word and of of the believer's relationship with God. In that respect, on a human level, it is a bit like, you could say, a wedding ring that serves as a, a constant reminder of one's spouse. Or some people, they wear a locket, you know, with a picture of a loved one in there, a constant reminder of, of the relationship as well. Now, this instruction can be seen as an extension of the command to diligently teach the children throughout the course of the day. And to do that, there would, to be, would need to be constant reminders throughout the day of being a child of God. And these reminders would be there. So if someone was thinking about something and then maybe he was, hadn't taken the phylactery off his head, oh, there's the box with a piece of God's Word in it. Oh yeah, I am a child of God. Or they would see this little thing on the doorpost. Oh yes, I am a child of God. Always reminders that, that God is our God. We belong to Him. We are His people. Now we know it is not required of us as New Testament church, but really... You know, many families do something similar because I would suspect that if you visit the various homes of the families, every family at some point is going to have a favorite Bible verse on a plaque or a sign on the wall somewhere, maybe maybe the wedding verse or something like that. You know, many families have that special verse for the family. Or some ladies might wear, you know, some, some crosses for earrings or even crosses for jewelry. Even some men do those kind of things. And that's a constant reminder. We are the people of God. It's only a little physical thing, but they are reminders. In that respect, we might even want to point to our baptism. Of course, baptism is kind of evaporates pretty quick. Would be quite something, you know, if we actually got a little box and kept water on our forehead our whole life. Would be quite something, because then we would have a reminder, a very visible reminder on ourselves that we were God's people. We belong to our triune God. But whether there is a physical reminder in terms of some wall plaque somewhere, a wall sign, or whether it is a reminder that we were baptized, all these are reminders that we are the people of God, that we have this relationship with Him that He has established out of grace in His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's indeed the main point to take away from this, these constant reminders of the Lord as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. In that way, you could say He remains present and His Word remains present in our lives always. Maybe in our, in our situation, maybe the best way to even do that would be to make sure that we have a copy of God's Word, always close at hand, very visible in our homes somewhere. Shouldn't have to go searching for a copy of His Word. That Word needs to be always there. Because how else can we embrace Him? How else can we teach our children? How else will we stay close to our God and Savior? Now, in all this, do keep in mind Moses' big goal in these sermons of reminding his hearers what God had done for them, and also calling them to be faithful, not repeating the sins of their forefathers that had led them to missing out on entering the rest for nearly 40 years. Moses had to do this because he wouldn't be around forever. We said that already. His death was coming very near. 
And yes, they would have Joshua to take over, but he wouldn't be around forever either. But they would always have God's Word. Even for us, we always have God's Word. Because even though we've had a greater Joshua come, our Lord Jesus Christ, he went to the heavens after his victory over the grave. But we always have his Word, his enduring Word that is there for all generations. That Word, which is really God's enduring voice to us. Let's keep that in mind. God's enduring voice. And as God's plan of salvation has unfolded and his written revelation has grown, his words continue to contain the message of salvation, teaching us how we are saved from bondage to something far worse than Pharaoh, bondage to Satan, teaching us how we should live as his children. But that word, though, must be a living part of our lives. And therefore, let us apply ourselves to appropriating, communicating, and commemorating His Word. And doing that will keep us safe on the way to the eternal promised land. Amen.
prayer, we're also will remember our sister uh, Cynthia Admiral as she learned this morning that her brother-in-law Ken Lindy from Attercliffe in Ontario passed away. So we'll also ask the Lord to give comfort to her and her family. Let us pray. Heavenly God and Father, we give our thanks to you for your word, a word that teaches us to know you as our powerful creator, our gracious redeemer, the God who loves us, the God who has given his own son to lead us out of bondage to, to Satan and sin, all foreshadowed also in the Exodus in Old Testament times. And we rejoice in knowing that we are a redeemed people. We are a people who are traveling on our way to the heavenly rest, the new heaven and new earth. Father, continue to work on us by your Holy Spirit that we understand our special relationship with you, that is a relationship out of grace, that we see your love, that also more and more we learn to live in response to that love. And may we grow in appropriating you, our gracious triune God, that we sincerely love you, embrace you, that we trust your word, we love your word because we know through that word we hear your voice speaking to us. May we learn to live closer to you as our gracious Father, that we know we are brought to you by your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that you work on us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Allow us to grow in having our faith as a real experience, a real joyful relationship where we indeed find our comfort time and again in knowing that we have been saved by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, also continue to bless all efforts at communicating your word and the knowledge of you as you make yourself known in your word, your promises, the demands of the covenant. Bless the parents in that responsibility. Father, be with the fathers as they are called to be leaders in their families. Give them what they need to be dedicated in their tasks, to be involved in that task, even as they may be so busy in the various other callings that they have in this world. Father, may they indeed devote themselves to being a blessing to their children, to teach them what all these things mean about you and about the way of salvation and the importance of our Lord Jesus Christ and the way of walking in the Holy Spirit. Father, we give thanks indeed that many fathers are so diligent, that they are faithful in their task, bless their efforts, and give them what they need that they may always do it with love, that they will not exasperate their children. May they be a blessing to the children and bless the relationship between fathers and their sons and daughters. And also be with the mothers who devote so much of their life, so much of their strength to the task, not only of bringing children into the world, but of bringing them up in the world, of teaching them from early morning to late at night. Father, give them also what they need to go about their task with joy and love. Also, and at times their patience may run thin that they may receive strength to continue to look after the covenant children that they have been entrusted with. Bless the task of father and mother together in every family. Father, we also give thanks for the opportunities we have for parental schools. Give thanks that another year is almost coming to completion. We have the opportunity, the freedom to do so and bless also the labors of this past year at school and also grant safety in the final weeks of school and traveling to and from school. 
And Father, may we also be faithful in commemorating, never forgetting that we are your children, that we have your word, so it is always visible, it is a reality in our lives. May we so grow as your people, that show in every way that we belong to you, and that we rejoice in having that relationship with you. Father, continue to provide also for our older brothers and sisters, provide for them in their various needs that come with aging, also as they lose physical and mental strength, perhaps. Father, grant the grace that is needed to be also age gracefully, to be a blessing to the younger generation. Be also with those who are mourning. We think of our sister Cynthia Atmaral as she learned of the passing away of her brother-in-law in Addercliff. We pray, Father, that you will be with her and her family, that they may also know that those who die in the Lord, they are now with their Lord and Savior, and they are at peace, they are at rest, as they anticipate from heaven the coming of the last day. Father, be also with others who may be dealing with various illnesses, where it pleases you, grant healing and recovery, and where it is in your plan that these illnesses would remain for the rest of our life. Father, we pray that you will grant the grace to live with that and to accept that and to also continue to serve you, whatever hindrance there may be in terms of physical or mental health. Bless us now in our time of fellowship also between the worship services. Father, allow us to go about our task in joy, to be a blessing to each other. Be pleased to hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You now receive the opportunity to give your offering. It is for the work of word and deed. And after the offering, let us sing together Psalm 103, the stanzas 7 and 9.
of the Lord and depart in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.